Isaiah 52 Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyselves from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. <coughs> for thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them. And now therefore what have, we, have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord. And my name continually, every day, is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore shall they know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. <coughs> thy watchmen shall lift up the voice with the voice together shall they sing for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion break forth into joy sing together ye waste places of Jerusalem for the Lord hath comforted his people he hath redeemed Jerusalem the Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out to the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before thee, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. We stop there because, strictly speaking, verse 13 commences that great chapter which we generally call Isaiah 53. This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number nine of the series of studies in the prophecy of Isaiah. We are now approaching the most wonderful chapter perhaps in this prophecy and most certainly one of the most well-known and well-loved chapters in the Old Testament. That which portrays so vividly the sufferings, the death and the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I refer of course to Isaiah 53. But it occurs in a setting and today we're approaching it so that we may get the setting right and then see the jewel in its setting all the better. You will notice that the arrangement which I have set before you includes more than chapter 53. We have uh, chapter 52 from the verse 13 where our reading stopped, you remember just now, uh, right through to chapter 56, verse 8. And I cannot stop to justify those subdivisions for it would mean going through the whole of the prophecy to show you that they fit. 
But I think some of you who are listening to this recording, you will already have had the uh, chart which sets out the whole of the prophecy of Isaiah in its seven great sections. Well, now you notice that we have the um, one or two features that are sort of echoing each other, setting a pattern. You cannot avoid the evangelical salvation element of Isaiah 53 and we read that he bear our sin. The great sin bearer. Well, the bearing of sin is not only that punishment may be inflicted and righteousness satisfied, but that those who were sinners might be saved. It's the love of God that moves the arm. And so we read uh, in the other section which balances that, if you'll look at 55 verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him to our God and he, for he will abundantly pardon. Not merely pardon, but abundantly pardon. So there we have the work accomplished and the results enjoyed. And you will notice too, uh, perhaps it's, it's suggestive that in Isaiah 53, to procure these blessings, he poured out his soul unto death. Uh, but when you come to the other passage, you see, it says, um, verse 2 of chapter 55, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labour for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and he eat that, that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. And there's no reason why you shouldn't add to this suggestion because I've given the barely skeleton and I'm hoping that some of you are saying, well, why haven't you put down the word satisfy? Because in verse 2 we read, which satisfies not. And in Isaiah 53, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. All is much more. I'm only giving you the barest outline. And then you see we have the other clause which uh, starts with chapter 54 where we have restoration. Uh, verse 2, enlarge the place of thy tent and they're going to break forth on the right hand and on the left and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. Thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles. And then uh, at the end of that chapter, verse 17, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And again, you might have looked at Isaiah 53, where it says, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Uh, there's a suggestiveness here, friends. There are weapons being forged in this very day in which we live, and some of them will be directed against the people of Israel. Most definitely, not only Gentiles will seek to destroy one another, but there's a tremendous uh, feeling in a certain part of the earth to try to blot out the people of Israel and take the land back again. And that day is drawing nearer, alas. But here's a word that anticipates all that before ever they thought of these dreadful weapons. No weapon that is forged against thee, formed against thee, shall prosper. Now you don't ask me how that's going to be brought about for I don't know. But God who said it, he knows how he can do it and how it's possible. And then we have the the um, 
alternative in Isaiah, the other side, that the scriptures which have been entrusted to us, verse 50, chapter 5, 55, verse 11, or the figure, of course, is as the rain, I ought to go back in my reading to verse 10, as the rain cometh down and snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. Will you notice that? I think that nearly every Bible meeting, or even every gospel meeting, should have a twofold effect. There should be bread for the eater, that is to say the person who needs the bread of life, he should find it, but there should also be seed for the sower. What is an encouragement to me sometimes in this sense is to see someone quietly take a pencil out of their pocket and make a little note. I know what's happening. They've got a little bit of seed for the sower so that I should never go up Charing Cross Road and speak but somebody up there may get it, you see. So here's the twofold work that can be accomplished in any meeting if we are faithful to the word. Those who are hungry will receive bread and those who have already received it will now receive seed to sow. The two side things. Well now then, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing thereto I sent it. We may not always know why God sends a certain word. We may be expecting the conversion of somebody or what not, and it doesn't seem to take place. Well, that word has started on its journey, and you may never see in this life why you spoke that word. But as surely as it's a word that God sends, he will prosper it, and it will accomplish his purpose. And if it accomplishes his purpose, then we, every one of us, should be satisfied. Well, I hope you won't be satisfied with that analysis of chapters 52, 53, 54, 55, and 56 because that is asking too much. I've only just stepped through it with a few evident outstanding parallels. You will find many more as you patiently search and see. But I must remember that I mustn't get too intimately down to detail in these meetings, otherwise we shall weary some of our listeners, and instead of serving them, we shall only make them tired. So we concentrate our attention for the remainder of our time, on the way in which this Isaiah 53 that we're approaching, this Isaiah 53 is used in the New Testament because one of the signs of the value of any scripture in the Old Testament is the way in which it's picked up either by Christ or by his apostles in the New. And of course you're already aware uh, that this Isaiah 53 is quoted in the Gospels it's quoted in the Acts of the Apostles, it's quoted in the Epistles. So that um, I think it will be wise for us to use the time we have this afternoon <coughs> just to acquaint ourselves with that fact. So now shall we turn um, to the first quotation, which is Isaiah 52, verse 15. Uh, so shall he sprinkle, I'm not going to alter the authorised version at the moment, that will need, need to be done presently. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, 
and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Now that's a quotation uh, that you wouldn't quite expect to be taken out and quoted, but it is in Romans the 15th chapter. Romans the 15th chapter, um, 21 and 22. It will give you a little illustration of the way in which sometimes the scripture is quoted to prove something which wouldn't quite be accepted in a modern uh, system of logic. He says, um, with regard to his ministry to the Gentiles in verse 16, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed. He's only going to boast if he boasts at all in what the Lord has done through him, not what others have done. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. I'm going to stop here in case any of you should have met an argument that has been put forward by some that the second epistle of Timothy goes within, is falls within the Acts of the Apostles and was not to do with an imprisonment later. There's all sorts of attacks made upon the book, uh, but here's a little bit of history and geography. The, um, this Illyricum was renamed and I think you will find that it's the same spot that's mentioned in 2 Timothy where it's there called Neapolis. Now it was renamed about the middle of the 60s and the Acts of the Apostles ends about the 60s. So you see, if, if we remember that, Nobody could give the geographical name that had never been given to a place, but Paul uses both names for the same place because the time had changed. If that doesn't mean anything to you, just forget it. But if you've been up against it, it might be just a word in season. So, from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, I so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. The apostle seemed to be very sensitive that he didn't sort of let somebody else do the donkey work and then he go in and get the praise for it. He did all this and by the mercy of God he stands here. Now he says, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. So that is a peculiar lifting out. And we might pass it by and say, don't waste your time on it. Uh, but, you see, it gives a little suggestion that this man, as all the New Testament writers, were very sensitive to the meanings and teachings of Scripture. And anything which bore upon it, even though it wasn't fulfilling like a prophecy, they were ready to let it be a little guidance to them and their ways. So we'll leave that one to speak for itself and come to those which are a bit nearer to our, uh, our purpose. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, we find, uh, first of all, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Now, the 12th chapter of John is the last chapter 
of the outside section of John. John 13 starts speaking to his own that were in the world that he was going to leave behind. And uh, quite a number of people feel a little bit disappointed if you say to them, uh, don't you realise that John 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17 is particularly addressed to those apostles who were going to be left behind by Christ? Won't you spare just a few chapters out of the whole Bible for Christ to give them final instruction? You know, some people, all they make say John 14, they stand by. Any amount of times in my Father's house are many mansions. And if you ask them how they're going to get mansions inside a house, they doesn't matter. That's all right, you see. See, the Father's house is actually named in John's Gospel. My Father's house is the temple. That says so. And the mansions are resting places. And just as Eli and the infant Samuel had their little resting place in the temple, they stayed there, they lived there, they slept there. So don't forget, in my father's house are enough resting places for you, my twelve apostles. He's giving them comfort and guidance and he's preparing a place for them and so all that, you see. So I'm only just throwing that in again. There are some things that are not true of you or me. In uh, this section of John, he said, when the Spirit of Truth is come, he shall bring to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Well, that can't be true of you because the Lord has never said anything unto you and then the Spirit has come and reminded you of it. So it's for that people. Well now, John 12 ends up then the outside address to the outside world. And we have in verse 38 or verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then, of course, there's another quotation, follows that in verse 40 of Isaiah 6, uh, which we are not dealing with, but we must note verse 41, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. So here's a definite New Testament statement that the one that was being spoken of in the prophet Isaiah was Christ, he spake of him. We'll find that is repeated presently as we go down this list. But now we turn to the more obvious passage, that's Romans the 10th chapter. Romans the 10th chapter. Here again we find this passage of Isaiah 53 is quoted. It says in verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the apostle asks a very intelligent question. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, that bring glad tidings of good things. You see, that's another quotation from the uh, prophecy of Isaiah. But that's not the one we're looking at at the moment, Isaiah 53. Verse 16. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
Who hath believed our report? So John picked that out, and the Apostle Paul has picked it out, and used it with great power, you notice. Well then coming down the list again, to um, Isaiah 53, verse 4, we have these wondrous words. I think we ought to look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He is despised and we esteemed him not. Now, verse 4 is an anticipation by the prophet of what Israel will say when they look upon him whom they pierced. We are told by the prophet the day is coming that Israel shall look upon me whom they pierced, saith the Lord, and they shall mourn for him as a man mourneth for his son. And then all Israel shall be saved, a nation shall be born in a day. And this is more or less anticipating what they're going to say. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is something new that they hadn't thought of. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgression. That's the confession. But you see, this passage is cited, this um, uh, 53.4, in the Gospel according to Matthew. And the 8th chapter, 17th verse. Matthew, the 8th chapter and the 17th verse, is dealing with the working of miracles. And the passage is cited in connection with that very fact. Let's read the verse. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself bear our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. Now, what's all this about? It says... It says in verse 14, And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. And when the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with demons. Never devils in the New Testament, friends. There's one devil, but all the rest of them are demons. You're going to say, what's the difference? Well, I don't know. But we just remember that as a, as a fact. Demon possession is here. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Now, that may have sounded as though well, it was easy for him. He was the son of God and all he had to do was to exercise this power and demons were cast out and fever left and sick were healed and blind were given sight. But there's another passage you remember a, a poor woman who had been afflicted with disease for many, many years and spent all her strength and all the money she got and got no better but rather worse. I know a little bit about very, very tiny, weeny bit of that because I've listened to the many things that have been said would help me and I thought, well, I'd better try them. So another three or four shillings goes for that. And just the same, nothing happens. But of course, in my case, I'm quite all right so far. But this poor woman... Oh, she'd spent her all and profited nothing. And then, seeing that our Saviour was healing folk, she said, Oh, if only, if only I could touch the hem of his garment. And she crept through the crowd and eventually she did. And then our Saviour turned around and said, Who touched me? 
Well, the disciples looked at him and they said, You say, who touched me? Why are the crowd is thronging thee? Pressing at it. Ah, he said, yes, they may be. But this was a touch of faith. For he says, virtue went out of him. Oh, you see, that puts a new light on it. It doesn't say every time he healed anybody, he doesn't say it, virtue went out of him. But it suggests that it cost him something every time a person was healed. Do you wonder that at long last, when he bore our sicknesses and bore our sorrows to such an extent, that when the moment came in the garden of Gethsemane, he swept, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, and he was saved from death. Hebrew says so. Saved from death. That was the sign of a fatal seizure. If you were to go to your doctor today and ask what a bloody sweat indicated, that would be the index. That unless something happened, that person was going to die. And he was spared. But he was so weak that they took the cross off of his shoulder and put it on another. Not because they were kind, but because they got to get there. So never let us make light of the Miracles that Christ wrought, for they cost him something every time. Virtue has gone out of me. He bear our sicknesses. Well then we'll go down the, the uh, chapter again, 53 verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, the of the genitive case sometimes has to be expressed better to get the English idea like this, not merely the chastising of our peace. Our peace wasn't chastised, but the chastisement connected with our peace, the chastisement that was associated with delivering us and giving us peace, was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now those words were quoted by Peter. The first of Peter, chapter 2, 24. The first of Peter, chapter 2, 24. Supposing we um, go back a little bit and see the way in which Peter introduces this. It's always helpful to see a context. <coughs> Verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted? For your faults ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, now you notice, <coughs> because Christ also suffered for us. Why he was bruised and he was afflicted and he suffered death, but it wasn't because he had done anything worthy. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, 
but committed himself to him that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. I'll stop for a moment to remind you that the Apostle Peter never speaks of the cross of Christ. That comes as a shock to some people and they immediately say, oh, I don't believe that, so that's a good idea. You start reading the New Testament right the way through, from beginning to end, do your good, and you'll find that he always refers to the tree. He never once uses the word cross. He does use one word which can be translated crucify, and that's the one nearest he gets to it. Now, why? Well, Peter was addressing the people of Israel, and in the law of Moses, Anyone who transgressed the law would understand what it says, uh, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That was the execution under the law of Moses. So Christ was hanged upon a tree. And that's what Peter says when he spoke in the Acts of the Apostles. Whom ye crucified, no, whom ye delivered and hanged upon a tree. Now, there's one epistle written by Paul where he brings the two together so that we may see the link. It says in Galatians, the same thing, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. But then he goes on in the epistles of the Galatians to speak about the cross of Christ linking the two together. But Peter is addressing his own people and pointing out the fact that he was dying under the curse of a broken law. Now we pick it up again. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we be in dead to sins. You see, Peter is not merely speaking about the initial salvation. He is now talking to those who have put their trust in this crucified Saviour and therefore are reckoned to have died with him that he can say to them, now you can follow his steps. This is not a gospel to preach to an unsaved person and say, now if you're only following the steps of Christ you'll be saved, the poor wretch can't do such a thing. But if he is a saved person, then he may be reminded that the Saviour who saved him has left us an example in this world to meet things in the same spirit. Where did I get to? Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. So there he's got the point. That's the way in which you've been healed, by someone dying the just for the unjust to bring you to God, to quote Peter from another chapter. I think we'll finish verse 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You'll understand why a bishop was given a crook because he was a shepherd. And that is the figure that is here. They were as sheep going astray. And Peter evidently had this in mind when he wrote the second epistle. He said there are others who are sows that have been washed and they return to their wallowing in the mire. I have a feeling that there is no record in scripture that a sow is washed and becomes a sheep our saviour said he came to seek and to save lost sheep 
But they were sheep even though they were lost. And they were still sheep when they were found. This is getting to very high doctrine, but I think there's a point there. That the sheep were the object of his search, the object of his salvation. And here we have they've returned unto the shepherd and bishop of their souls. Well now shall we look at 53 verses 7 and 8. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. One of the things which is stressed in the New Testament that puzzled them. Answerest me now nothing, said the high priest. Don't you know I have the power of life and death over you, said the high priest. I adjure thee by the living God that you speak. And then he did. They marveled. You see, we're so ready, aren't we, most of us, to set up our own defence. But he knew that this defence was hopeless. That they were not listening to reason or to truth. They were out for his blood. So he didn't waste their time or his. So it says here, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep. You notice the change, no mistake. You don't take lambs, usually, in the first case, and cut their fleece, uh, their sheep, when you get the fleece, usually. Just a little transition. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened it, not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? Some of this has got to be more carefully examined and explained later. I'm only going through a series of quotations that are found in different parts of the New Testament now of Isaiah 53. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. Now, if you will turn to the Acts of the Apostles, the 8th chapter, you'll find that this is quoted there. And quoted with one very essential emphasis. The 8th chapter. And uh, verses 32 33 onwards. I think we'll go back a little bit in the 8th chapter to see what was happening. Philip had been used by God in connection with a ministry and then in verse 26 the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip saying Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gazar which is desert. He's going to leave a ministry which had been instrumental in the salvation of quite a number. And we must be on our watch, lest mere numbers is the thing that counts with us. One of the snares of having to provide a mission society with statistics. I don't know whether you ever feel like this, when you read some of the reports that are sent in by poor, distressed and harassed missionaries, well, they tell you that so many were converted at this place and so many believed at that place and you wonder how it is that there's anybody left who's unsaved by the number of conversions that take place at all these different meetings. I don't know. But it's a great temptation to feel that you've been a successful witness for God if there are crowds there and if it's only one 
or only two, perhaps it's not worth a bother. Well, this is going to be corrected, you'll see here. The Spirit himself took Philip away from apparently uh, evangelistic campaign and said, now you go down to the desert. He didn't tell him who he was going to meet, but you go down there. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia. Now these are the two coming together, you see. Philip is being sent by the Spirit. The man of Ethiopia is being led by God. He doesn't know anything about it. But it's most obvious, isn't it? A eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. My, my, the way you get this man's titles. He's worth a good multitude if you can get that man to be a believer. What's going to happen when he goes back? Perhaps Philip will never get to Ethiopia. But this man might. So you see, how are you ever going to compute the consequences of obedience? and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So evidently, he was a proselyte. He was one that had joined as far as it was possible for a Gentile in worshipping the God of Israel. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, reading Isaiah the prophet. I don't know whether they did in those days what some of our friends do in this day. They take portions of scripture out with them sometimes, and in conversation with a person up in Charing Cross Road or what not, they may pass a copy of John's Gospel or whatnot onto them. Well, here's this man coming back from Jerusalem with a copy of the prophet Isaiah. Now, there was no Bible society in his day that printed them off by the thousand. They were all written by hand. So he had got a priceless treasure. And he was even reading it in his chariot. Uh, that's a good sign when a person does silly things like that because I don't know how you're going to drive a chariot very easily and read the prophet Isaiah from a scroll. It shows something of a man's interest, doesn't it? He was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither. I like this man, you know, he gives it up and he comes and now he doesn't walk solemnly and with great um, dignity uh, no, he runs, because if he doesn't, he won't catch up and carry it, you see. So, yes, he ran. And uh, heard him read the prophet Isaiah. And he said unto him a most pointed question. Understandest thou what thou readest? You remember in Romans, it said, How shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they believe anything if they don't understand it? If I could speak Chinese and I quoted to you a portion of scripture and said to you, do you believe it? You'd have to say, well, I'm sure I don't know because it all sounds funny. It sounds like ching, chang, wang, boom. I don't know what it means. You must understand. So he says, to understand this, what thou read it, read this. And he said unto him, how can I? except some man should guide me. Now, you might have raised an objection in the reading of Romans 10. For it says, how shall they hear without a preacher? But you say, surely God's not dependent upon preachers. How shall they preach without being sent? Only occasionally in the history of salvation does God speak directly to the human soul. But hundreds and hundreds of times a man has been brought to salvation by another man like himself or woman, saved by grace, 
find them the same mercy going out and finding another one. That's God's usual method. The miraculous is not the usual. It's the marvellous thought that God condescends to use the human instrument. And so this man of Ethiopia wasn't wrong when he said, how can I understand except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. There's a pair of them there in the chariot. It is rather fine. He's getting a lift and a ride. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. Now he was right in the middle of what we call Isaiah 53. And it's not the passage that you and I would pick out as a sample. We would have got so he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and thought that was the one. Oh no, he's got to this point. <clears throat> he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb, dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who should declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? I stop for a minute to make this comment, that if you will collect together all the quotations of Isaiah that are found in the New Testament, you'll discover that they practically give us the same words that we've got in our Bible in the Old Testament. And some of them are taken from the first part of Isaiah, and some are taken from the second part of Isaiah, and the Spirit of God calls them both the prophet Isaiah. There are some people who say there are two Isaiahs. Today, to be up to date, you have about four Isaiahs. And the reason why the newspapers didn't have great splashing headlines when they discovered the scroll of Isaiah in and got it retranslated was that it said exactly what we've got in our Bibles. Well, that's not news, is it? You know the idea? Dog bites a man, that's not news. A man bites a dog, that is news. If they discovered that the prophet Isaiah differed, all oh, they'd have been having columns in the newspaper about it. But who's going to bother about columns in the newspaper to prove that the prophet Isaiah is just what God said and true today? So here we have this man reading practically the same words that we have. And the eunuch answered, Philip, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Now, isn't this man intelligent? He doesn't take it to himself. He doesn't know. He says, now I can't understand this unless I'm told what he's talking about. Of whom? Does he speak of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. Isn't that fine? He didn't say, oh, well, now you've given me rather a bad bit. You, if you'd only quoted this. No, he began at the same scripture and he preached unto him Jesus. And that brought that man to salvation. And he was baptized. And he went on his way, a redeemed child of God. That's the prophet Isaiah. And so we have, once more, Isaiah 53, verse 9. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Would you look at 1 Peter 2, 22? We've looked at 1 Peter 2 just now, but here's another reference. 1 Peter 2, 22. Referring to that same passage which we looked at just now, um, that having no guile and leaving us um, 
Verse 21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. We had it just now. So now we're back to 53, or when it said those words, neither was deceit in his mouth. Now don't say, oh, it says in Isaiah, deceit, and it says in Peter, guile. Well, one is a Hebrew word, one is Greek, and they're both translated into English. So you see, there's no contradiction. It's merely that in the course of time we use slightly different words. Well then, the last reference is Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, verse 28. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 15, verse 28. <coughs> this is the record of the crucifixion. Verse 27, And with him they crucify two thieves, the one on his right hand, the other on his left. And and the scripture was fulfilled with Seth, and he was numbered with the transgressors. There they were, two thieves, and he was put there in the midst. And no difference was made with regard to him, and his cross, and his sufferings and there, numbered with the transgressors. Luke 22, 37. Luke 22, 37. Verse 37. Now, Saviour is speaking. This is before the crucifixion. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So he said so, and it was so. Now, in one place it's translated numbered. The other place it's translated reckoned. And the same word is translated count. And the same word is translated impute. All in one chapter, Romans the fourth chapter. So, where Paul speaks about reckoning for righteousness and imputed unto us for righteousness, it's all this word. And that's only possible because he who knew no sin was reckoned a sin bearer for us who did the sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and that was by reckoning for he did no sin and he knew no sin but he bare our sin. So what a wealth of teaching there is in these verses that are scattered through this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. (coughs) Well I think that brings us to the limits of our time today and I did not intend going through Isaiah 53 as a chapter, there's much more in it, but to put it in its setting, in this bigger section, and I think that we, we realise it's been worth the time spent to see how one writer after another in the New Testament has been moved to pick up this book and uh, quote it. I hope you've got no difficulty. I do remember once being interrupted in a meeting when I was in America, when they said, I kept saying Isaiah, and they said, we say Isaiah. Well, Isaiah is, of course, one attempt to to write it according to the Old Testament way, and Isaiah is an attempt to write it according to the Greek, 
And in neither case is it exactly the same because Isaiah would have perhaps passed right by and wouldn't know we were saying his name at all because we shouldn't pronounce it as they said it in his day at all. That's no bother to anybody, I hope. You see sometimes Timotheus and sometimes Timothy. Well, the same person. And that's merely a matter of custom and language.